most of us probably are familiar with the mission of Redeemer Community Church. We say that we want to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. We take it from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we want to joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. If you took me to coffee and said, Mitch, tell me more about Redeemer. I know what we're trying to do, but why? What, what really motivates us? Some would call them the values of Redeemer. What, what are we passionate about? We generally, we say five things, and these are the five things I want to preach about over the next five weeks. We say the things that, that we value, the things that motivate us are the glory of God, the gospel of God, the word of God, the people of God, and the mission of God. And I hope, we hope, that all of you would say, you bet, if you've been here at Redeemer, any length of time, you, I hope, would be able to say, yes, this is a group of people, this is a church family that honors and loves and values the glory of God. This is a group of people that loves and honors and values the gospel of God, the good news that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, rescues sinners who turn to him in repentance and faith, forgives them, welcomes them into his family, and promises them eternal life. That you would say, yes, this is a people that loves the Word of God. They read the Word of God. They study the Word of God. They preach the Word of God. They teach the Word of God. Everything they try to do, it seems, is tether themselves to the Word of God. We love the people of God. We sure hope you've experienced that, that this is a church family of love and the mission of God, that we understand that we have been sent on mission with Jesus. We're not only to joyfully follow Jesus, but we're also to help others do the same. That these are shared convictions that hopefully guide our actions. These answer the question, what's important at Redeemer? The glory of God, the gospel of God, the word of God, the people of God, the mission of God. That in some sense they represent the collective soul of our church family. And they don't describe what we do, but hopefully characterize all that we do. So this morning, I want us to look at the glory of God. By way of a bit of introduction, maybe, our men's Bible study meets on Friday morning and we've been going through the book of Romans. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been going through Romans chapter 9. And if you're familiar with Romans 9, you know it proclaims an absolutely sovereign God. That God is in control. That he has unconditionally elected a people to be his children and that God has the freedom to show mercy towards sinners. And the freedom not to show mercy towards sinners. It's a powerful chapter that can push our buttons. And at one point in the chapter, Paul responds to a presumptuous question. Someone answering back to God. And Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Will it? Does not the potter have the authority over the clay to make from the same lump a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable. It's a powerful chapter about the sovereign freedom of God. And in his response, who are you, O oh man? Paul reminds us of the incredible gulf 
between the Creator, God, and the created, you and me. The infinite, sovereign God, the finite, frail mankind. God is great. If you have your Bible, we're going we're gonna to go to a few different places today. We're going to start in Exodus 34. You can turn there. In Exodus 34, Moses is going to ask God, show me your glory. And just as we begin and we're talking about the glory of God, here's an attempt at a definition. And you all know that I love and go often to Dr. John Piper. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. That the perfections of our God are manifold. They're many. They're various. And it is in some sense this glory of God. It's the sum of those perfections. It's not simply considering the omnipotence of God or the justice of God or the mercy of God or the righteousness of God or the kindness of God. Or we could go on and on about the incredible attributes of our God, but it's the sum of them all. It's considering them all. It's taking them all into account. And you ask, well, what do we have when we do that? Answer, infinite beauty. Infinite greatness that we could only call the glory of God. It's the sum of all of his manifold perfections. I found this quote this week. I was looking at my bookshelf going, the glory of God, the glory of God. I pulled off a theology book by Millard Erickson, Christian Theology. Began to rummage through it a bit, and he said this about the book that he was writing. The central motif around which theology will be developed in this writing is the magnificence of God. By this is meant the greatness of God in terms of his power, knowledge, and other traditional attributes, as well as the excellence and splendor of his moral nature. Theology as well as life needs to be centered upon the great living God rather than upon man the creature. Because God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, it is appropriate that our theology be constructed with His greatness and goodness as the primary reference point. A fresh vision of the magnificence of the Lord of all is the source of the vitality that should pervade the Christian life. And he puts in parentheses, magnificence here is to be understood as encompassing what has traditionally been associated with the expression, the glory of God. All that to say, when he talks about magnificence, the magnificence of God, the excellence of God, the splendor of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, he's talking about the glory of God. And he says, again, a fresh vision of the magnificence or the glory of the Lord of all is the source of the vitality that should pervade the Christian life. If you and I, according to Erickson, want to have a vital Christian life, one that is full of life, passionate, then we need a fresh vision of the magnificence, the glory of God. So to say that God is glorious is to say that he is great. He is majestic. He is magnificent. He is splendid. He is excellent. He is beautiful. The glory of God. Here in Exodus 34, 
The context is that God has delivered Israel out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea and they've come to Mount Sinai. And there at Sinai, God revealed his word to his people, the Ten Commandments and further laws as to how they were to worship him, obey him, and treat one another. And he began to give them the instructions concerning the tabernacle which they were to build. And in building that tabernacle, God would come and dwell among his people. But If you know the story, while Moses was up on Sinai receiving the law and the instructions concerning the tabernacle, the people at the bottom of the mountain began to grow impatient. It's the golden calf incident. Hey, Eric, Moses has been up there too long. Make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so Aaron says, okay, give me, give me your gold ear earrings, your gold jewelry. He takes the gold, he, he melts it down, he, he fashions it into a golden calf. He took this from their hand, fashioned with a graving tool, and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So they've got this golden calf, but we're going to have a feast to the Lord. So this is it's this wicked syncretism. We're going to worship the Lord and the calf. So the next day, they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. God looked upon this and did not like it. And he threatened to destroy all of Israel and start over with Moses. And Moses pleads for them, and God relents. And in the midst of that context, in chapter 33, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. I want to see, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see a manifestation of your greatness. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And so there seems to be some sort of equating of the glory of God with the goodness of God and the name of God. You cannot see my face, no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So Moses is going to have some experience of the glory of God, the goodness of God, the name of God, but not in fullness. Down in 34 verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. And it's interesting. Moses wants to see the glory of God. And apparently the answer is, I'm going to tell you about my character. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm going to reveal to you attributes about me. Which by application, I think for you and me, is if we have a prayer like Moses, God, I want to see your glory. One of the answers might be, take and read. Take and read, because here in the pages of Scripture, God has told us about his attributes and what he's like. But here is this incredible revelation from God. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We note first, as one said, the accumulation of terms that are nearly synonymous. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. To assure Moses and through him all of mankind at large of the reality of this attribute. It's God word after word after word after word after word. Terms that can be distinguished but in many ways carry the same idea. God is compassionate and merciful and kind and forgiving towards sinners. God wanted Moses to know in the midst of this terrible context of the golden calf, and he wanted all of us to know in all of his fullness, God is gracious towards sinners. We sing, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Brothers and sisters, will you not lean into this? Will you not love this? Will you not? Trust your entire eternal salvation to this, that God is merciful and gracious and kind towards sinners. To the humble of heart, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Of course, all of this will come to its fullness in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins so that through him we can have the forgiveness of sins. But the giving of his son burst forth from the heart of a God like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the glory of God, but also he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In setting forth his attribute of mercy in all of its fullness, God will not have his attribute of justice forgotten to the humble who will come with empty hands of faith, repenting and trusting in God through his son, Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness. But to the proud, there is only the expectation of judgment. The wages of sin is death. And God has provided through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness for those who will repent and believe, but for those who will reject him, only judgment to be expected. What do you do when you ask to see the glory of God and God reveals to you his glory in words like these, verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. We're not exactly sure what Moses saw. We know exactly what he heard. God spoke and says, this is what I'm like. This is my glory. This is my goodness. This is my name. And Moses said, I worship you, the glorious God. Turn with me to Psalm 19. 
Maybe a familiar psalm to many of you. Look what David says in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Yet their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterance to the end of the world. In them, in the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David says that the creation, the handiwork of God is shouting to us, shouting his power, his greatness, his majesty, shouting, God is glorious. Open your eyes, Mitch. Open your eyes, people of the Lord. In what God has made, he has declared his glory. The sun, the moon, the stars, the expansive blue sky, the beautiful ever-changing clouds, the majestic sunrises and the overwhelming sunsets. David says, tell of the glory of God. They pour forth speech. As I pondered on this this week, sadly, our faces are so stuck down here, are they not? Our eyes so peeled to the TV, so peeled to the computer screen, so peeled to our dad gum phones. To the newspaper, to whatever. And sadly, the light from the city drowns out the overwhelming majesty of the night sky. And for both of these things, how fixated we are down here, and how sadly the night sky has been drowned out in our city, we are not the better for it. Even yesterday morning, I went to take little Penny, our dog, for a walk. And it was a pretty nice morning, and I had Penny, and we were just, and I'd probably walk for about, and, and I had these sorts of things on my mind, but I'd probably walk for 10 minutes, and I realized that I had walked Penny like this the whole time. Just my face on the concrete. And I remember, get your face up, Mitch. Look. And you look up, and it's just a beautiful blue sky which God had made. And to get to the blue sky, there's green trees, and it's just a time for prayer, time to thank God for the beauty and the majesty of what he had made and to remind myself, Mitch, David says this is telling me about the glory of God, his immense power his unmatched creativity, his unbelievable wisdom. Remember these things, Mitch. Don't let them pass you by as you so often do. Chris Tomlin, who imagined the sun and gave source to its light, yet conceals it to bring us the coolness None can fathom, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. A 
I go from Chris Tomlin to Don Williams. Now, you've got to be an old-timer to know who Don Williams is. He sang a song about a poor country boy who was in love with a girl, but sadly, she already had a ring on her finger, a diamond ring. And he knew that he lost her. And some of you all know what he sang. I'm just a country boy. Money have I none, but I've got silver in the stars and gold in the morning sun. That's pretty good. Yeah, you married a city boy who gave you a diamond ring. And yeah, he's gonna, you're going to have all kind of stuff and hustle and bustle through life, through the city, through the summer. Ah! But if you'd have married me, we'd have sat out every night and we'd look at the silver stars. And we'd wake up every morning and see the golden sun. Poor girl. <laughs> she missed out. Paul picked up on this, didn't he, in Romans 1? That God has made himself known through the created order, his eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made. God declared his glory in Exodus 34. Here David says the heavens declare that God is absolutely glorious. Keep going to your right to Isaiah 6. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah chapter 6. This is a prophet's gaze into the heavenly palace of the king of kings. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So, so Isaiah is getting a glimpse, gaze at the Lord. At least a, a mediated manifestation of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. So he sits on a throne. The Lord is the king. And he's, he's lofty and exalted. The idea may be, and we've all seen pictures of a king's throne that's at the top of a staircase, that, that he's lofty. He's exalted. He's the king, the monarch, the sovereign. And the train of his robe is filling the temple. Speaking of his dignity. And seraphim stood above him or, or were attendant above him. Seraphim it literally means burning ones. These are apparently angelic creatures which God had made. And to look at them, it's as if they were burning, dazzling bright. And they are probably not standing above him, probably the better. The seraphim were attending above him. And each having six wings. That probably communicates the idea when God says go, they go quickly. They can fly with their six wings. But as they are attending him upon his throne, with two, they cover their face. Probably they're not able to look upon the splendor, the beauty, the dazzling brightness of God himself. With two, he covered his feet. Not exactly sure what that means. It may mean the idea that as the angels go off to do their ministries, as God sends them, if you will, their feet get dirty. And when they come back into the presence of God, they have to cover up because they are in the presence of absolute purity. 
and with two, they flew as they are attending above him. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It is the attribute that is so essential to God. And it means that he is set apart. There's none other like him. It's not that there's a bunch of gods and, and, and he's of, among the gods, he's the best of the gods. It means he's the only God. He's holy. There's none like him in heaven above or on earth below. And it is repeated for emphasis. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they say, the seraphim, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. I pondered this more this week than probably I ever have. I don't, I don't know if I'm on the right track here. But if you'll forgive me now, Lee Greenwood. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA, there's pride in every American heart. Time we stand and say, and, and indeed we do this weekend, Memorial Day, those men and women who have given their lives in service to our country, we remember them and are so thankful for them. Greenwood was trying to say from here to there and everywhere in between. And maybe the seraphim would like to take us from one point of the globe to the other, from north to south, east to west, from the depths of the oceans to the top of the Himalayas and every point in between and say, the glory of God is on display. Do you see it? The Net Bible translates glory here as majestic splendor. And as I ponder it, I just wonder if, if, if maybe the idea is something like this. David said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sun, the moon, the stars. And maybe the angels, the seraphim here would say, you bet, but the whole earth is full of his glory. It's not just the night sky or the day sky, it's everywhere is full of his glory. The heavens above and the earth below. We can look to the skies or we can look to the ants. We can look to the stars or we can look to flowers to the sun and moon, or to the ocean waves. And maybe, 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 more than any other, we can look at each other. People created in the image of God. The glory of God is everywhere, the angel says. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Just as when Moses heard of the glory of God, he fell down and worshiped here when Isaiah sees this vision and hears the angels and feels the trembling. Woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Oh, if you and I had eyes to see more than we see. One more. Go to John chapter 1. So into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
God declared his character to Moses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The seraphim says, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And then, of course, in John chapter 1, in the beginning, verse 1, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, he is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, who down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Many believe that John has in mind Exodus 34, 6 and 7 when he writes this paragraph. That God had revealed himself to Moses as one full of grace and truth. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And now here John says that the eternal Son of God, who is himself God, distinct from the Father, became flesh. He he, he took to his divine nature a human nature, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory. God, I want to see your glory. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness and truth who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And now John says, the eternal Son of God is taken upon flesh. He's dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Here was a man full of grace and truth. Down in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Remember, he's probably got Exodus 34 in mind. Where Moses wants to see the glory of God, and God said, listen, you'll have to hide in the cleft of a rock. I'll put my face over you. Nobody can see my face. You'll only see my back. You'll, you'll see something, but you won't see me. And John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, who's in the bosom of the Father, close, intimate relationship with God the Father, he has explained him. I mean, God, when, when, when the eternal Son of God took upon flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he explains further who God is, full of grace and truth. Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And John said, we saw his glory. In everything about Jesus that they saw and experienced, his tenderness, his toughness, the gracious words that would fall from his mouth, the wisdom of his teaching, the kindness of his touch, the power of his word, giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and those who were lame would be healed and go leaping for joy. The kindness of his eyes, the posture of his humility, that this one would come from glory, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. His majesty expressed through his incredible meekness. Jesus Christ. Declares the glory of God. 
maybe a few implications for us. Number one, God is glorious. Let's share that conviction together here at Redeemer. Tell me about Redeemer. That is a people. That is a church family that recognizes, appreciates, values, proclaims, bows before, worships God because they believe him to be glorious, great, excellent, magnificent, splendid, you name the word, the sum of all of his perfections. God is glorious. And number two, in light of that, he is worthy of honor, thanksgiving, worship, service. You remember the problem that Paul identified with humanity in Romans chapter 1? God made himself known through the creation, clearly. But he went on to say, even though they knew God, Paul said, they knew he existed because he had made himself known through the creation, his eternal power and divine nature. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged what? The glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, bird, uh, crawling creature, and everything else. He went on to say, They worshipped, he said it, and I already quoted, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So they, they didn't honor him as God, nor give thanks. They didn't worship him, they didn't serve him. But guess what? If you know Jesus Christ, you and I have been made new. Paul was describing those who 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 didn't know Jesus Christ, who, who were fallen in their sin. And we, if we know Jesus, have been made new. We've been forgiven of our sins, and we've been made alive spiritually. And so while we don't see the glory of God as we should, we do see it, don't we? And what ought we do? Glorify him, praise him, thank him, worship him, serve him. Number three, God is not to be an addendum to our lives, but the controlling center. What's an, an addendum is something you just add on. We got ourselves, we got our spouse, we got our kids, we got our work, we got our finances, we got our dreams, and oh yeah, we got God too. We'll get to Him when we have time. We'll get to Him when He fits into our schedule. We'll get to Him when He fits into our hopes, plans, dreams, and the like. And He's not meant to be something we just add on, He's meant to be the controlling center of all of my life. who I am and, and what I'm to feel and do and be. And it, it, it's, it's meant to come forth from a relationship with God and how I treat my spouse in relation to God and how I do my work and how I manage my money and all of my hopes and dreams that's all meant to come forth from my relationship with God. What Jesus says, seek first what? The kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added to you. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's cliche, but it's good. We got to keep it in mind. The main thing is what? To keep the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing? 
for one of life's greatest adventures is getting to know our glorious God more and more. If you learned more about God, would you not love him more? Surely the answer to that is yes. He's glorious. There's so much more to learn. Part of the reason why I think the eternal state is going to be eternal. Because we're just going to keep learning more and more and more and more about him as eternity goes on. The reality is that you and I get the privilege now to grow in the knowledge, the wonderful, life-changing knowledge of our glorious God. And so practically, let's keep doing this. Let's keep gathering together as the people of God to worship him together and to hear from his word together. And practically, what it means for you and me is a daily basis, let's seek him through the word and prayer. Do you read your Bible with an eye and an ear and a heart? God, I want to know you. And there are wonderful books out there, theology books. Uh Uh-oh. Right? No, there's lots of good practical theology that's written too. I get it. Some theology books go over my head too. But there's some good books out there just about our great God. A.W. Tozier wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's that thick. I love books that are that thick. The Knowledge of the Holy. Two, three pages long each chapter, closing with a prayer about knowing God. Of course, J.F. Packer wrote one of the more famous books, um, Knowing God. It's thicker, it's a little more heady, but he wrote it for God's people. He didn't write it for seminary professors. He wrote it for men and women like you and me. Just last week, Sarah was out of the office. Holly Dalrymple was sitting at the front desk for us, answering the phone and greeting people as they came in. And I walked by and she's reading Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I said, I love that book. She says, lots of people love this book. She's right. So we read our Bible. We find good books about our God and we read those. And I put here also, Mitch, look up. Look up. From the... TV and the Netflix binging that we do, hour after hour after hour staring at a TV screen. And I know, men, women, when you're at work, so often you have to. You're you're in the office, you're in a cubicle, and you got a computer, and you got to. You just got to stare at that screen all day long. But God help us to look up and look down at the ants and the flowers and look around at people. What David say in Psalm 8, when I consider the moon and stars, everything that you've made, all that stuff, what is man that you are concerned with him? but you have crowned him with glory and splendor. We are made in the image of God. We are like him in some way. And so your spouse, your kids, your friends, your church family, the homeless guy on the corner of the street displays to you and me the glory of God if we only had eyes to see. And finally, it's time to go. Let us just be a humble people. Because if indeed it is true that God is glorious, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people 
of unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said. A fresh vision of the glory of God should lead us to see that we are sinners. And the fact that God has been merciful to us, compassionate to us, and chosen to save us should lead to humility and praise. It should not lead you and me to go, well, of course he saved me, because I'm kind of like him. No. We are sinners. And if you're saved, you are saved because God was merciful towards you, compassionate towards you. You didn't deserve it, and you didn't earn it. All you deserved and earned was hell. But God said, you're mine, and I'll send my son Jesus to die for you. And I'll open your heart to believe the gospel message and trust in him. That's why you're saved. It's because this glorious God decided to be merciful to you and to save you. And so it ought to humble us. And as we're humbled, it ought to give us great confidence that I belong to God, I'm forgiven, and nothing will ever separate me from his love. I am secure in him. Amen? Let's love the glory of God. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, you are great. You are glorious. You are wonderful and you are excellent. And we remember that One of the great displays, the greatest display of your glory was sending your son for us. We thank you for him and for your love and mercy extended to us through him. Help us to love and appreciate and value the glory of God. Would you please, oh God, give us eyes to see more and more through your word, through the creation around us, through the people in our lives, the glory, the greatness, the splendor, the excellence, the beauty, the infinite beauty of our great God. And we will pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.